30 for 30 podcast is brought to you by our friends at State Farm. Whatever life brings your way, State Farm is here to help life go right. State Farm has over 19,000 agents across the country. 19,000 is a huge number, but it's not the number that's impressive. It's the personal service and attention to detail you can only get from your local State Farm agent. Talk to a State Farm agent today about combining the purchase of your home and auto insurance. State Farm, here to help life go right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 30 for 30 podcast. My name is Jody Avergan. All this summer, let's call it a podcast festival of sorts, we are marking 10 years of the 30 for 30 film series, looking back at some of our favorite documentaries or ones that we feel have had a big impact. And this one, no surprise, has been on our list from the very beginning of films that we need to discuss when you ask people about the 30 for 30 series. This is often the first film that comes to mind. What does O.J. stand for? Oh, Joe. Come on. Come on. Tell it. All James Simpson. O.J. Made in America is a five-part, seven-and-a-half-hour film that broke away from the usual 30 for 30 format to great acclaim. In it, producer and director Ezra Edelman used O.J. Simpson's life story as a kind of venue to explore America's complicated racial history, as well as the rise and fall of one of our greatest sports icons. What, what is driving O.J. Simpson is that need to be known, that need to be liked, that need to be said, hey, that's O.J. Simpson. For us, O.J. was colorless. None of the people that we associated with looked at him as a black man. Seventy-seven percent of whites think Simpson is guilty, and 72 percent of blacks believe he is innocent. All the evidence points back to the police department, and it looks like a major setup to me. I think he's innocent, and not just because I, I want him to be, it's just based upon the facts that have been given. Ezra Edelman is too humble to say this, so I will point out that O.J. Made in America won the Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature in 2016. I recently spoke with Ezra live on stage in Brooklyn at the On Air Fest, a festival that explores storytelling and creativity in sound. We spoke a lot about his film on O.J. You will hear that in a minute. But he actually directed a 30 for 30 before that called Requiem for the Big East. And I was interested to start with that film because it's a sort of fascinating challenge to make a film where the protagonist is not a person, but a sports league, essentially a legal conglomerate of a bunch of college basketball programs that made up the Big East. So I asked him whether it was hard to figure out who would be the subject of that film. Yeah, it was because it really was. And you have to decide on... Um, who are the sort of main subjects within that. And I think that's something that I did partly because I was a kid who grew up a huge fan of the Georgetown Hoyas who were in the Big East. But yeah, that was one of the sort of things that needed to be cracked is how do you tell this as a film with a consolidated you know, narrative if you're talking about it's, it's in essence a business story. And you sort of honed in on the coaches. We were good teams. With colorful coaches, Carnesecca, Massimino, Calissimo. This was an immigrant league. It was an upstart league. And he had big John Thompson, who's six foot ten, and he's got the towel over his shoulder. They called me at time, jokingly, a black Italian. I think the coaches established the philosophy and the integrity of what the Big East was all about coaches and then just sort of picked you know 
really a represent like group of players yeah. that were representative of this sort of most prominent schools of the time. For recruiters, a Patrick Ewing is a once in a lifetime find. My decision is to attend Georgetown University. Yeah. More people calling you Mr. Mullen. You can't talk about the Big East and not talk about Pro Washington. When I see a team like Syracuse playing on national TV, I say, you know, that's where I want to go. You mentioned the Georgetown Hoyas. It's not just a story about a bunch of coaches and a bunch of players, but it's also about the larger cultural impact. Wearing Georgetown gear said something about your consciousness and what you were about. I'm tough. The crowning thing was just the way they played. Kids with chips on their shoulders. There are a lot of tough guys in the league, and they all played that way. It represented how we all felt. look at that stare. In a decade when inner cities up and down the East Coast were starved by government policies and ravaged by crack cocaine, anger was bubbling. It came out in an emergent art form called rap, and it was on full display every time Big East teams took the court. So you talked a little bit about growing up a Georgetown fan. I mean, I, I don't know. It's just, it's just funny to me to think of a time when Georgetown and sort of street culture were so closely tied, because I think of Georgetown as like a private Catholic school right now. Well, that's part of the joke about Georgetown, that there is a school that it's on the hilltop and, you know, even the controversy about, you know, the university and, and slaves in the last you know, 10 years that have come out. And you had this sort of really intimidating, tall, black basketball coach who had an all black team in the 80s that really belied the sort of idea of what this university was. And you had so many people around America, but I think outside of America, they like to say that they had no idea that they thought Georgetown was like an HBCU yeah. just because of their basketball team. And so that, that's part of the story, which is it is, a, you know, this small Jesuit you know, university and that was the team and that's what they represented. The personal element here, like, were you just like, I care about the Big East and I want to tell this story? I mean, how much was it driven just by like your personal nostalgia? Um, you know, I don't know how that, I think the film actually came about from ESPN, but I do think that the sort of, you know, for me, being able to have an innate uh, nostalgia and ultimately the the sort of frustration and pain that came with this thing dissolving that we all grew up loving, at least for me, made it a lot easier to tell. Because I do think there's a a so, somewhat of a nuance to that story that if you were a completely out, objective outsider, at least in the way I told the story, you wouldn't be able to tell it because it really has to do with this cultural thing that you know we grew up with in in the Northeast. I love that era. I love just the tenacity of a game, the competitiveness of the game. That's it was special stuff. I love the Big East. New York City, Madison Square Garden, games, rivalries. Gone. All right, so that was our conversation about the Big East film that Ezra directed, and then we moved on to talk about the OJ documentary. We started with what attracted him to the project and what he felt could be different, given how much has been done about O.J. Simpson over the years. Well, I think for me, the interesting thing about it was that I was asked about making a five-hour film, which I was more intrigued by than whatever the subject matter was. That was the thing that got me interested before they said they wanted to make something about O.J., and I was not that interested in that. 
And the reason I didn't want to do something about OJ because I understood the threshold was going to be talking about a murder and sort of that period of time. And what I was more interested in was a lot of the history that came before and the time that I was being given um, allowed me to do that. And so that's the thing that excited me. And then you just go off and you pursue the stories and the themes that you're interested in. And we got very, we were very fortunate in sort of the response that we had from people. And so it grew to being almost eight hours long and ESPN was, you know, totally fine with it. You know, it's very rare that you get that um, sort of freedom from a distributor. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm aware of that a little bit. Um, to your point about the ability to do things with that much time. I mean, I'll tell you the first moment when I was watching it, um, where I was like, Oh, this is, there's something special and new here was during a long section. It's fairly early on about the Watts riot. It began with the arrest by white officers of two young Negroes, one on a charge of drunk driving, the other his brother. There was an argument, there was a scuffle. By then a crowd of several hundred Negroes had gathered. The story of police brutality quickly spread through the community. And white policemen have been treating us like shit forever. And we were gonna respond. No one expected the flashpoint of discontent to be in the sprawling, bungalowed 450 square miles of Los Angeles. I didn't think it was a big deal. I didn't think these people were, quote, persecuted. Why were they rioting? I was as naive as any other white person. The question came down from white people after us. They said, do most black people feel like this? And the answer came back. About 99% of them feel like this. And 1% are really mad. I mean, I'll tell you, my reaction when I was watching this was like, this 15-minute, 20-minute mini documentary about Watts inside this huge documentary about OJ is still the best documentary I've seen this year. Um, and I wonder how you thought of it. Did you think of it as like a set piece about Watts? Or did you think, well, well we just have enough time, we can do this thing? No, I did think about it as a set piece um, about Watts. But at the same time, what I thought about from the get-go was... OJ went to USC in 1967, literally at USC, which is this more or less lily white, all white, private, elite university, and it's almost like this walled off community. We are SC! We are SC! USC was a football school, it was a Hollywood school, it was glamour and glitz. USC was an isolated, beautiful school right next to the L.A. Coliseum. And on the other side were the slums of L.A., basically Watts. The institution that gave life to O.J. Simpson's image and presence nationally and beyond is located right in the middle of that very same neighborhood. You know, O.J. went to USC um, having grown up and the project of San Francisco, and for me in thinking about it, when the riots were happening in Watts in August of 65, that was when OJ was going to community college and becoming famous as a football player almost sort of concurrently. And so for me, OJ, you know, became known for carrying a football. And meanwhile, right down this coast, you have all these people who to essentially shed light on the their lives and what they were going through, they rioted. And so the juxtaposition between what was going on, you know, with OJ as a black athlete and a, a very elite special black athlete at that time to get recognition versus a whole community of people. And then for him to arrive at a place next door, that was part of this whole story 
It's in this sort of sort of fucked up landscape that that place existed in both then and now. But structurally, how much, how did you think about kind of how far down a rabbit hole you could go and how long you could go without maybe saying OJ's name or drawing a direct line back? But if you, I mean, that actually, that part um, was trickier than the rest of the film because in the beginning of the film, it's where do you start? Um, literally there's a cold open in the film and then it's like where do you start with oj's story and in some ways we started with this sort of really fresh image of him you know as like this first year at usc at the university of southern california they have a living legend and at homecoming that's all they want to talk about the name of the legend is oj simpson here's simpson look at that cut oj simpson when you saw him on campus it was like wow there, there's oj for most of the USC students, I wager, O.J. Simpson was the first African-American they really got to see and talk to. And then we went back to him in San Francisco. O.J. and I were born in San Francisco in 47. He knew that he wanted to better his circumstances. And L.A. was the place to do that. The image of Los Angeles was milk and honey. There's no prejudice in Los Angeles. A civil rights leader in Los Angeles has said if you are going to be a Negro in a big city, then Los Angeles is the best place to be. And I got on a plane, one-way ticket. If I had money, I would have gone back home because it was very, very troubling once I got here. Everybody was always conscious of the police. So it was getting that mix of that first half hour really right, where it's also establishing what was going to be, in some ways, the texture and the narrative of the film. It's not just about OJ. It's about this other narrative simultaneously. And if you wait too long to do that, people are going to go like, like, what is this? But like, I wanted to sort of set the rules and the guidelines for how we were telling the story moving forward. We we did this series on the podcast last year. Uh, There's a five part series and we did the exact same thing. We, you know, we knew we wanted to go down rabbit holes. This is about Bikram yoga. And we thought like very early on, we need to just do this to get the audience ready. But then also, as I think you're saying, you know, drop enough breadcrumbs so that when you go down that structural rabbit hole, you can still bring people back. And you gotta, you know, and you want to make sure the viewer trusts you yeah. with where you're going. And, and every time that you're taking any sort of, if it seems like a tangent, but you're doing it for a reason. Coming up, we'll discuss some of the particular interviews and particular characters that made O.J. Made in America shine. Thirty for Thirty podcasts are brought to you by OnStar. If you're ever faced with something as terrible as vehicle theft, OnStar can help. OnStar has the power of stolen vehicle slowdown. It's a feature that enables an advisor to work with law enforcement to get your stolen ride back, slowing down your vehicle enough so that authorities have a chance to apprehend the crook who took it. Get OnStar on your team today. OnStar is available on Chevrolet, Buick, GMC, and Cadillac. OnStar, be safe out there. Requires select paid plan, cell reception, GPS signal, and working electrical system. Doesn't prevent theft, damage, or loss details at onstar.com 30 for 30 podcasts is brought to you by delta airlines delta flies to 300 cities around the world that's 300 cities where everyone does the same things you do that's 300 cities where the people in those 300 cities think they're the only ones who know about that one place 
300 cities where people miss someone in one of the other 299 cities. 300 cities where people sing in the car or in the shower or both. Poorly. Delta isn't flying to 300 cities merely to bring us together, but to show us we're not that far apart in the first place. Delta. Keep climbing. I've seen OJ sign autographs for hours. I was like, how in the world do you put up with this? He said, man, I wanted this. Let's actually just take a look now at a clip. This is OJ's childhood friend, Joe Bell. Is that his name? Um, And he's talking about, maybe you can help me set this up. Basically, in the 70s, they go to a tennis club with OJ. No, it's it's Robert Kardashian's house. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they go to a house and they're playing tennis surrounded by a bunch of rich white people. And this is um, Joe's recollection of that that moment. I'm black power, man. I don't want to be around these people, right? Because they're all phony to me. I said, OJ, look around you, man. These people don't care nothing about us. Just a few years ago, these guys would have drove down Fillmore in their Rolls Royce, and they wouldn't have even spit on us. I said, now they're acting like we're their long-lost brothers? I said, man, the only reason we're here is we're jocks, and you OJ. And he looked at me. He says, mm, yeah. He says, I understand what you're saying. And he rubbed his tennis racket. He says, but I am OJ. And ran off on the field laughing. I mean, I was furious because I said, he's lost. He's lost his identity. He doesn't know who he is any longer. How did you find Joe Bell? Uh, Joe Bell, our producer, great producer, Tamara Rosenberg, um, found this guy, and he is, I mean, he's my favorite. It, he's a stunning character. I mean, you know, just you can tell how good of a storyteller he is. I will say, as an audio person, first thing I noticed his was voice. his voice. Yeah. It's remarkable. I mean, yeah. did you, I don't know, again, this sounds simplistic, but was that something that you just knew, like, God, we have a guy who has a voice like this? No, I mean, it's all like this whole thing is such a leap of faith. You have a plan, but you have to go. And this is what makes documentaries so hard. You don't know who exists to talk to you. You know that there might be people who might be able to tell you something, but can they tell you something that's colorful and real? It was really important in telling the story to sort of tell all different sides of the story in all aspects. Um, but to tell it through first person recollections and the hardest thing from the get go was going to be there is sort of certain areas that were going to be hardest we knew in the film, but for OJ's childhood, it was going to be very difficult because we knew his family was going to talk to us. And so it was really contingent on finding some friends of his. We were fortunate enough to find this wealth of characters who couldn't just tell the story, but told it well. I mean, without Joe Bell, is there a version of this story that's very different? No, the story I think is exactly the same. I just think, but at the same time, I ask you, you could just just pick five there's 72 people we interviewed 66 people in the film and you could go take five people out i could be like if you took joe bell out and took carrie best the juror out and took you know one of the the lawyer you know the one of the prosecutors out anyway there's these characters that like in itself doesn't change the story but there's so many of these vivid characters that make the story. And so what is it like if Joe Bell's not in it? It's the same film. It's just not as good. Because also, the thing about Joe Bell, he adds a 
credibility to talking about OJ the character because of someone he knew very well and could speak about him lovingly and critically. And I say this, and I don't say it facetiously, but he is seduced by white society. That gave you sort of a sense that what we were doing was correct. And I think that that is a more important voice than everybody else because it came from a personal place. And so in some ways, yeah, I don't actually think the film is nearly the same without him specifically. Because he's getting right at the heart of what I suspect is what you were trying to do, which is complexity and humanity and painting this person as a real human being. And he validates sort of, I could have all my theories about who this guy is and what my, you know, who, what, what his trajectory was. But again, to your point, when, you t- when he can tell a story like that as someone who has grown up with him, he's doing more than I could ever do. I can't get to that place without that guy. Uh, you mentioned another character, Carrie Bass. We have a clip of her. She was a juror. Do you think that there are members of the jury that voted to acquit OJ because of Rodney King? Yes. You do? Yes. How many of you think felt that way? Oh, probably 90% of us. 90%? Did you feel that way? Yes. That was payback? Uh-huh. You think that's right? What were you thinking when you were sitting there asking her those questions? She, that was the culmination of many months of trying to get someone to talk to us that had zero interest in talking to us. And, you know, that was, in some ways, she's a a wonderful character. And so sort of getting her to focus on certain things was difficult. Um, but again, that's a good example. It's the same thing as the Joe Bell question. There are these little, it's a really long film, but there are these little moments that make the film worthwhile. And that was the one thing I will say that, you know, a lot of this to me, the film was a, um, a little bit of a feat of, of coalescing and sort of making connections between stories and things in a way that hadn't been done before and, and reframes a narrative of that we had, um, sort of all thought about and absorbed. Whereas that was the one thing where a juror, you know, this is something people had thought about or talked about, but no juror had ever said that. And so that was one of the few things that we felt like, oh, that's actually new. Let's play one more clip. Um, and this sort of picks up off of that same scene. So we have this notion of payback and you sort of go down uh, and explore that a little bit. We, the jury in the above entitled action, find the defendant or job. Orenthal James Simpson, not guilty of the crime of murder in violation of Penal Code Section 187A, a felony upon Nicole Brown Simpson. A human- did this really happen? They really did it. They walked him out the door. The majority of the world or the majority of Americans think that we're a group of idiots uh, who didn't get it right. I think that the jury was made to be the scapegoat for their faults. Had they come correct, had they had the right attorneys up there putting on the case that they need to put on, they would have won. It wasn't payback. They messed up. It may have been payback, but it wasn't payback for anything that happened recently. It was payback for what's happened over the last 400 years. It was payback for how black people are treated in America. So I, I suppose 
this goes back to something we were talking earlier about like how far out from this OJ Simpson story do you go? But I mean, did you, how did you think about including images of lynching and slavery and, and kind of the 400 years of racial injustice in this country in that moment? Just that I needed to do something that encapsulated what he was talking about. And, you know, I was a little concerned. I never want to be um, salacious in any way and flippant and using such images, but that is actually what he was talking about. And that's what he means. And sort of, you know, I still want to get to what is the emotion of something that is frankly, intellectually, by the way, I understood what this whole thing was very well. But I also was very in touch with the emotional part of it, which is I don't know that I felt any different when I sat and watched that verdict when I was in college. I didn't really have much skin in the game as far as OJ himself. And I don't even know if I knew the intricacies of the case, but I did have an interest in sort of a black man on trial and sort of in a very not like, again, not intellectual, emotional way. You know, the same reasons why Carrie was talking about it in many ways. And I hadn't thought about it, you know, 20 something years later, I could be like, well, it's not really the best way to go about thinking about things the more I know about it. But so, yeah, I get it. And that's part of it. I'll tell you that when I was watching this film, I mean, there are some some dots you don't connect. Like when I was watching this came out, what, fall of summer, fall of 2016, I was thinking about Black Lives Matter a lot when watching this film. But you never say those things words in the film so what you know what's your what's your bar for where you connect the dot and where you leave it i think if this this you don't need to connect the dots the story is what it is that what was happening today was not about it was everything about our story but it was nothing to do with our story so i was just telling the story purely to speak to what ended up happening with that trial and with oj so that it's the same story in america is not a surprise to me but i don't think i needed to do much beyond you know what we did okay any questions from the audience maybe the second row there in the blue um thank you so much i'm a huge fan of the movie um in addition to to police brutality the thing that really stuck out was how uh unvarnished way you presented the domestic violence that went into the story um and speaking of audio the phone calls of the 911 calls that nicole would make um can you talk a little bit about the decision to use that audio in the way you did and how you, that contributed to the, you know, that part of the story. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think that there was a concerted effort uh, to, you know, there's very little that exists, unfortunately, from um, an archival standpoint about her. And there was a sort of, you know, a desire to tell her story as well as one could. Um, and to try to understand the trauma that existed in her life consistently before, um, you know, the night of the murder. And, you know, you know, again, it's the kind of thing where you start off with these ideas of what you're doing. You don't know what exists to um, portray a relationship. And so you're sort of, you, you end up using the tools at your disposal. And so did, I didn't actually know that those tapes existed. And so it is all like that's part of the fun of filmmaking, which is, you are finding characters who can speak to the relationship, but then even when you, when I've that one sort of main call like that, um, she's really afraid and she's calling the police and saying he's outside of the house. Nine one emergency. Can you get someone over here now to three two five Gretna Green? He's back. Please. Well, okay. What does he look like? He's OJ Simpson. I think you know his record. Could you just? And it's like, well, okay. So how do we actually? Um, 
portray this visually beyond and, and add to a scene since we're, you know, and then it's like, oh, well, the house that she lived in on Gretna Green, there are people who lived there and we called them up and they were happy to let us shoot at the house. You're going to hear him in a minute. He's about to come in again. Okay, just stay on the line. I don't want to stay on the line. He's going to beat the shit out of me. Wait a minute. Wait, just stay on the line so we can know what's going on until the police get there, okay? And so that just sort of added an element to that. And by the way, I guess we could have shot at any house. It would have had the same thing. But like, there was just sort of an idea to bring her, you know, fear and sort of that dynamic to life as much as we could and you know and portray her situation as much as we could with the tools that we had so i don't think it was that deep beyond anything else but giving every one in the story it's and every theme that we are hoping to explore it's just due is he upset with something that you did oh, a long time ago it always comes back has this happened before or no okay Ezra Edelman, thank you very much. This was really great. Thank you. Thanks to all of you. Thanks to the Honor Fest. I don't know how I ended up here. I, I just don't know how I ended up here. To have accomplished what he accomplished and to have that brutal fall from grace, it's really an American tragedy. Please remember me as a Jew. Please remember me as a good guy. Please. Ezra Edelman is the director of the Academy Award-winning documentary O.J. Made in America. He also directed the 30 for 30 Requiem for the Big East. Thanks again to On Air Fest for helping us put together this conversation. And as always, I will remind you that if you want to watch any of Ezra's films or any other films in the 30 for 30 catalog, the only place to do that is on the ESPN app. Our new streaming service is ESPN+. Plus. Sign up now for ESPN+, Plus and enjoy a seven-day free trial. We've included a link to that in the description of this podcast. Tomorrow, day four of our week-long series on a decade of 30 for 30, we're going to mix it up a bit and look at a few 30 for 30 parodies that have been made over the years. If a hockey player can win the Masters, if a golden retriever can play basketball, if Michael Jordan can play with Bill Murray and Tweety Bird, then maybe we can believe that the Angels can actually win baseball games. My chat with the guys behind that parody who also made the show American Vandal. So stick around. My name is Jody Avergan. Thanks for listening.